0: You're welcome to turn with me now to the book of Philippians. We're going to close out our series this morning. Today is the fourth and final series uh, in this short series on this relatively short letter from the Apostle Paul. He's, he's writing, as we've said, from a prison cell in all likelihood in Rome. He's, he's awaiting trial, awaiting a possible execution. And he's writing to this church in Philippi, which was the first church ever planted in Europe. And he ends his letter like this. If you missed the, the first three uh, sermons in the series, I encourage you to go back and listen, get, get the background, see what Paul's doing here. Let's read this chapter four together. I'm going to read uh, all of these verses for us. Paul says, therefore, my brothers, my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and my crown, he says, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved this is, this is typical of Paul as he's been writing this letter. He, he just loves this congregation. There's so much affection, so much joy, so much, um, so much intimacy that he shares with these people. In, in all likelihood, this church is about 10 or 11 years old at this time. Then he says in verse 2, I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'm going to say it, rejoice. And let your reasonableness be known to everyone because the Lord is at hand. So do not be anxious about anything. And sit in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And it says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. This peace that, it doesn't even make sense why you have this peace. It will, he says, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely... Whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, Paul says. And he says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace, he's repeating, will be with you. And he begins to wrap up his letter. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity It's not that I'm speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In fact, he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. He says, in any in every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty or facing hunger. Abundance or need. In fact, he says there in verse 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And yet, It was kind of you to share my trouble, he says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into a partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more, he says. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable. And please remember Epaphroditus is the member of the church in Philippi that that church sent to Rome to be with Paul and he had gifts and money to support Paul in his work. And Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you too. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's house. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. God, we thank you for this letter, this gift that you've given to us, this gift that you gave to that ancient church, uh, but God, also that you give to us today. I pray we would hear from you. God, I pray that we would be transformed. And God, I pray that we would be, in spite of a culture of chaos and conflict, that we would be a people of peace. God, that we would be peacemakers, that we would be peace keepers, that we would be a restful and joyful people, a thankful people, a content people. So God, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, the the first verse here in chapter 4 probably really belongs uh, at the end of chapter 3 in terms of how the Chapters are divided. It connects to chapter 3 where Paul is encouraging this church to, to live as citizens of this eternal kingdom of heaven with their eyes and their hearts and their minds looking ahead to this resurrected life that they'll share forever with the king of their homeland. Think, set your mind on things above. Don't get, don't get so wrapped up and distracted as divided citizens of this divided kingdom here on earth. Live as citizens of a new kingdom. And then he, address, he addresses their division um, head on in chapter 4. And in fact, he even names names. He in some ways calls these women out. You see in verses 2 and 3. I'll just say a brief word about this. Paul mentions these two women in the congregation who are divided over some particular issue. Right? It doesn't say what the issue is. These two women, uh, Eudia and Syntyche, and he calls another unnamed member of the church. uh, It says a true companion to help them agree in the Lord. So, so Paul doesn't Paul doesn't talk about what's dividing these. There's something going on with these two ladies in the congregation. Some sort of conflict. Some sort of division. Paul doesn't really get into it. He doesn't get into the details. We have have no idea what's going on. We have no idea of the division uh, that's happening with these women. Paul doesn't try to fix it. Paul doesn't call it out. He doesn't try to solve their their problem. He just calls for the community to come together to help these two ladies agree in the Lord. To help them, as he says in chapter 2, to be of the same mind in Christ. It's actually the same word that's used here uh, here in, in chapter 4 as well as in chapter 2. The words agree and be of the same mind. They're the same thing. And so Paul is, Paul is trying to reorient these two ladies um, to what unites them. What brings them together in the Lord. They're placed together in God's kingdom. They're placed together in the body. And, and he, he names these two ladies. He doesn't name their problem. But he names these two ladies, which as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, it's, it's, it's beautiful that he does that. It's humanizing that he does that. It, it's, it's, it's really beautiful how he cares for these women in this way because I'm realizing that it's easy to forget when we're divided that, the, that people are still people, right? Right? It's easy to divide over ideas and policies and politics and opinions and preferences, but it's another thing to have an enemy with a real face and a real name, someone in your community. A human We have a we have a tendency to dehumanize the other to separate, to hide behind technology or or many things. And, and Paul is like a dad. Paul is like, a, and I've done this with my own kids. Paul's like a dad who calls these two girls together and he says, you're sisters. You're part of the same. I know you have reason to disagree. I know, there's, I know there's some conflict here. I know you're upset, but you're part of the same family. You need to be together in the Lord. You're a part of something bigger here. You're bound together by the unity you share as siblings. And he's calling the church to sort of self-police. Hey, there's these ladies who are struggling. You need to come together and bring unity. And then he gets right back to his point. He says, in the midst of this conflict, in the midst of this confusion, the one thing you don't want to do, the one thing you don't feel like doing in a divided church is what he's calling them to repeatedly. He says, I want you to rejoice. Again, I'm going to say, it. I want you to rejoice. I want you to be a joyful people. This is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, Uh, in chapter 4, really from verses 4 onward. Paul repeats that call, rejoice. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. This is something he said 15 or so times in a letter that would only take about 15 minutes to read. This is the constant drumbeat of this letter, to have joy, to rejoice, to be a joyful people. And he fleshes this idea out most fully in these few verses here. He calls them to rejoice as a community and also to be, he says, be reasonable, which is interesting. He's he's tying all of these things together that maybe don't seem connected to us. He's saying, I want you to rejoice. I want your reasonableness to be known to everybody. I don't want you to be anxious about anything. Instead, I want you to pray. Are we to bring your requests to God? Bring, bring all your anxiety and all your cares, all your concerns. Bring those requests to God with thanksgiving. And then he promises that as a result of doing that, that the peace of God will guard their hearts and minds. Even as he's writing this, I'm thinking, the, the peace of God will, will guard your heart and mind like this, like this guard who's chained to my wrist. Even as I write this letter, the peace of God will guard you. And I'll just say a word here, that what Paul is saying in verse 6, when he calls the church not to be anxious, Paul's not meaning just a general concern, right? He's meaning, he's calling them away from an unduly apprehensive, to being unduly anxious or unduly concerned, often in contrast to trusting in and being secure in who God is. Paul even commends their, their reasonable concern for him in verse 10, right? He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that you have concern for me. So he's not, he's not condemning a kind of general concern that people have about life. He's also, I don't think, uh, condemning those who are suffering from clinical depression or anxiety. Like we see King David suffering uh, throughout the Psalms, maybe especially like Psalm 38, What what Paul is condemning here is is, is being unduly apprehensive, unduly anxious, unduly concerned with the uncertainty of life, which would be unreasonable in light of the sovereignty, grace, mercy, and and kindness of God. He's saying, look, if you really believe in the sovereignty and the kindness and the grace and <clears throat> the knowledge of God, if you believe he knows all things, if you believe he is all loving, then it's not very reasonable for you to get unduly worked up about all the uncertainty of life. It's more reasonable to trust in him who's watching out for you. That kind of peace and rejoicing is reasonable because we have a faithful and trustworthy God. What's more reasonable than that? Is it more reasonable to trust in the financial markets? I don't think so. Is it more reasonable to trust in the security of your job? Or more reasonable to trust in the success of your parenting? I hope not. Is it more more reasonable to trust in your own coping skills? Probably not for many of us. More, more reasonable trusting in a politician or a policy or a political party? Not these days. Or is it more reasonable to trust in the creator of all things, the knower of all things, this eternal king who knows us, cares for us, knows what's best for us, and is watching out for us, protecting us, engaged, gu- guarding us over our shoulder, present with us. Peace is the opposite of what we feel when we trust and put our security in anything other than who God is and what he's done and what he's promised to do. And one writer, William Barclay, he he writes commenting on this passage, he says, you know, in biblical times that villages would have an official uh, that would be called literally the superintendent of peace or the, the keeper of the public peace. Um, it was the idea of someone sort of watching out over the city. Uh, another commentator wrote, the, the Greek word here that's used in this verse means more than living a life with no conflict or, or being quiet or being still or at rest. It's, it's used specifically for the calmness that a nation or a city feels that it enjoys when it knows that it's being, that it's being cared for by a competent and secure leader. A peace that comes from knowing someone strong is watching out for you. That's what kind of peace Paul says we have. We can have a peace knowing that we have someone watching out for us, guarding over us, present with us, and on alert. So Paul calls them to rejoice and he calls them not to be anxious. And then he immediately tells them how to do it. He says, this is what kind of life I want for you. This is what kind of life God wants for you. And this is, this is how you get there. And, and we see it through these Three imperative verbs in verses six through nine. We see it in verse six, make your request known to God. We see it in verse eight when he says, I want you to think about these things. And we see it in verse nine when he says, practice these things. Those are the three imperative verbs in that section. So that's the way forward. That's the way to peace and joy. We bring our requests to God through prayer. We think about certain things in a certain way. And we practice this kind of behavior day in and day out to grow in peace and joy. He's calling us to pray, to think, and to practice. None of those are easy things, right? None of those are easy things. See, Paul contrasts anxiety with in everything uh, with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Martin Luther said it succinctly. He said, I'm going to pray and I'm going to let God worry. It's not a bad strategy, right? Because what does worry add to our life? What is it? Anxiety and worry, this unduly, this unreasonable concern, it doesn't add anything to our lives. It doesn't help us at all. But, but unburdening ourselves, bringing our anxiety, bringing our concerns, bringing all of our stresses to God. That's powerfully transformative. Even just speaking them out. Saying them out loud. getting a Oftentimes anxiety just feels like this huge monster. This, this dark cloud that hovers over us. And for some it is. But it helps to... Get a handle on it to maybe make a list think about what's worrying you what's bringing you such anxiety what's what's bringing such confusion or frustration H a Ironside, H. A. Ironside said that, that we would worry less if we praised more that Thanksgiving is the enemy of discontent and dissatisfaction. I was talking to a, a friend who's a, a, a licensed practicing counselor recently. Um, And he he was talking about, he was sort of telling me about this this obvious massive epidemic of anxiety. Uh, This was even before COVID. And we've seen through COVID those things have just shot through the roof. And, and he's seeing clients on a daily basis who are struggling with different forms of anxiety. And, and of course, every, every patient, every situation, every client, um, every anxiety, every solution is different. We, we know that, of course. Um, but he was saying that, that with all of those patients, almost no matter where they are in the process, um, that he would encourage them to keep a regular uh, gratitude journal. Have you ever heard of something like that, a gratitude journal? So it would be very simple. So you could keep a notebook in your pocket or you could just use your phone, use your notes in your phone. And as, just throughout the day, as often as you can think about it, every time you sense something positive, jot it down. Keep a gratitude journal. Right? You, you, the, the coffee tastes good this morning. All right, I'm going to mark that down. Right? There's this beautiful sunrise. The weather is just right. There's a nice breeze in the air. Someone said or did a kindness to you. You got a good parking spot. The meeting was productive. Like The conversation was helpful. Whatever the thing is, you're, you're training your mind to be grateful for the things that God is giving you. And he, says that, that, he said that's like one of the most powerful things that some of his clients experience is just keeping that gratitude journal and reorienting their mind around a sense of gratitude for what God has done. This isn't like new age freakiness. It was a licensed counselor saying, this is hopeful. This is the Bible telling us, don't be anxious, but instead bring your request to God with thanksgiving, with gratitude. We're directing our thoughts to God who is the giver of every good thing. And that changes us, that shapes us. So he's calling us to pray and he's also calling us to think about certain things in a certain way. It says whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, if there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, think about these things, right? It's interesting because I think that our culture's method of um, reducing anxiety is often often about clearing our minds, right? Right? So we, we we go to the spa or we go to the beach or we take a rest day. We try to empty our minds of what is bringing us stress. That becomes our strategy. But scripture says really the exact opposite of that. The, the scriptures call us to to consider Jesus, to think about Jesus, to set our minds on things above, to meditate on the gospel, to set our minds on God's grace and God's mercy, to think about these things that are true and honorable and lovely and excellent and worthy of praise. The, The Bible doesn't say shut off your mind to relieve anxiety. It says light your mind up. Light your mind up with all of these truths, with all of these good things, with all these praiseworthy things. That's what's transformative is to train our thoughts to think about what is ultimately beautiful and good and gracious. And he ends there in verse 9 by calling the church to practice these things. Which is, I read that, that feels like good news to me because it's not something that happens automatically, right? Right? Because you may look at yourself and say, I'm I'm struggling all the time with my frustration or my anger or this or that. I'm, I'm worried about all kinds of things. I don't have any peace. I can't make myself rest. I haven't experienced joy in a long time. Paul says we need to be bringing our requests to God. We need to be training our minds to think about these kinds of things in these ways. And we need to practice this. Practice the things that you have learned and received and heard from me and the peace of God will be with you, he says. Peace doesn't happen automatically, church. It doesn't happen automatically. I think think anxiety is like weeds in the garden. If you don't do anything, anxiety is what happens. It takes work to weed the garden. It takes work to have peace. It takes work to have joy, to have a life of rejoicing. Paul says, you gotta practice it. This is an ongoing, this is, you know, a couple of years ago we did a series on uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And this is a, this is a cultivated fruit. This is a fruit that is produced throughout our lives. And oftentimes, this is a fruit that is often best produced through suffering and through struggle. And I'm sure many of us have experienced that, right? I was talking to uh, some folks this morning at the, at the 830 service and they were telling me about a really difficult season that they had just been in uh, with their children. And even as I was talking to them, you could, you could see in midst of the struggle, in, in the midst of, of, the, of the pain that they were going through, there was a, a, a peace that surpassed all understanding. A peace that surpassed the circumstances. It was something going through that pain taught them to have a new kind of peace and a new kind of perspective. Thomas Trask said that one tremendous benefit of a crisis situation in life is that they can often force us into a place of brokenness concerning our own strength, but they can lead us to a place of dependence on the power of God. Peace and joy and rest take practice. It takes work. Paul isn't calling us to any kind of trick or silver bullet. He's calling us to a different kind of lifestyle of prayer and thought and practice. And all of this, all all of this praying, all of this thinking, all of this practice, it's empowered by and directed towards the God of peace. And the result, Paul says, is joy and peace. And also, as we see here in verses 10 through 13, contentment. He says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content, whether I'm brought low or I abound. In every circumstances, he says, I've learned the secret. Again, there's that word, learned the secret of having plenty or being hungry, abundance or need. I can do all things through Christ. There's another one of those live, life verses for us, right? I can do all things, he says, through Christ who strengthens me. We see it again there in, in verse 19, Paul's promise as he closes the letter. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So just take, just take a second to think about your greatest needs. Those pain points, those tender spots, those places of fear or concern or worry. And Paul's telling that church, think about those things and know God will supply every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. No matter our circumstances, no matter our current obstacles, no matter our current crisis, Paul says we can be content knowing that we can can move through all things. He can take us through all things. We can be strong in all things. We can endure all things, he says, because he is the one who gives us strength. Because he is the one who will supply. he He has abundant resources at the ready to supply us as we come to him, as we bring our requests to him. He responds with generosity according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This is an important lesson for us, church. Strength is not something that we muster. It's something that we receive. It's something we receive. It's a gift to be received. Marvin Gaye said, if you can't find peace within yourself, you'll never find it anywhere else. I love Martin Gay, right, as much as the next guy, but he is dead wrong on that point. He is dead wrong on that point. Augustine had it right when he said that, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. If you are spending your life trying to find peace exclusively within yourself, trying to find strength within yourself, trying to find joy within yourself or your accomplishments or your experiences, you are going to work your way into a spiritual bankruptcy. Augustine says we are restless until we find our rest in him. Marvin Gaye had it wrong. Paul would say in Ephesians, having, having no hope and without God in this world, but now in Christ Jesus, uh, you who were once far off, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ because he himself, you remember the passage in Ephesians 2? He himself is our peace. He is our peace. Our peace is found in the person and work, in the finished work, in the promises to come of Christ, not in ourselves. I encourage you this morning, look to Jesus. True and lasting peace is found and kept by him and in him and through him. And our peace was bought at a great price. He is our wonderful counselor, He is our mighty God, He is our everlasting Father and our Prince of Peace. So we can rejoice and we can rest this morning. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this word. God, we thank you that you are a God. You are a God who calls us to joy. God, in all likelihood, many of us have not considered that about you. That your your burden is light. You are calling us to joy and to rest. God, I pray that we would be that kind of people. God, help us this morning. Help us to pray. God, help us to think. Help us to live this life of practice with our hearts and minds set on our citizenship in heaven. God, we love you. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.